Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. Hello, America. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our weekend edition when we look at a few news stories, but then we talk about warfare um, in these recent weekend editions and then a little bit on agriculture as well. So stay with us and we'll be back to start our agenda today. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
We're back. And Victor, there's there's some in the news. I know that we had a good session on especially international and then some things going on in the far, far west, as we called, as you called it, as your grandmother called it. Uh, Lots of people have written in to um, the website that happy birthday wishes. And we are recording actually on Tuesday, which is your birthday. So just wanted you to know that there's lots of fans out there. Nobody ever thinks it's going to happen to you. What, turning 70? Yeah, I've got a lot of people that say happy birthday. And I said, so I I just write back and said, I'm I'm glad I made 50. (laughs) So I cannot believe 70. Yeah. That's the problem with all these um, narcissistic, self-absorbed baby boomers. We all think, I can't believe this is happening to me. And we, we get old. Seven I, years old. I, I can remember, gosh, 1960, I thought my grandfather, I remember his birthday party. We had a big 7-0 and a cake. I thought, wow, he's ancient. I, I like that you use the pronoun we and include yourself in those narcissistic um, baby boomers. <laughs> I am. I'm a part of that. I fight it every day of my life. I thought, yeah. wow. You've inherited from your generation, or I don't think I was a promulgator, but I was inundated with it at UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. Despite the best efforts of my Depression era, World War II era parents. (laughs) You got to remember what Horace said in the third. No, that actually, that was in the satires when he said, we, a generation more decadent than our parents, are about to produce a generation more decadent than we are. Yeah, that's that idea of pessimistic decline, but mm-hmm. something about it. I just gave a talk today. I'm at Hillsdale College and I gave a talk on D-Day, the 79th inter- um, anniversary to the Hillsdale Academy, K through 12. Wow. I, that was one of the topics. Nice. Could the 18 year old, I asked how many were in the class that were 18 and would it, what would have been like if you were 18 to open that door in LST and have to go shoulder deep in that water, knowing that things were starting to go wrong. The minute you got out of that landing craft, the water, you went onto the beach, there were minefields ahead of you. The Germans were not undermanned. They were waiting for you on the cliffs. And Omaha was turning into a 4,000 plus dead day. And and yet they kept running. They kept running all the way to the seawall, the ones that made it. Yeah. And they all got, that's good. I, I think of that because it, I get so angry when these people like AOC, just to pick on somebody, start making fun of this country and they, they are so pampered. And then they don't understand those kids came out of the depression and then they put them in the army and 12.3 million of them. And those guys that got the, the lottery ticket to be on Omaha Beach at six, five in the morning. And there was nothing, none of them turned back. They opened the doors of the landing craft. They were up to their knees with 70 pound, up to their neck, 70 pound. They waded through the water. They waded through the machine gun fields of fire, the artillery blast, the minefields to get to the seawall. And wow. then they had to blow it up and go through. And then they were in the bocage and they none, none of them turned around. What a generation. I hope I asked the class, of course, I'm in Hillsdale. So they're unusual kids with all of them. What would their attitude be like? I think they would have been the same, but I can't say this same for 
half the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Never well, know you know, if dangerous if, to make those statements, but this generation, I'm very worried about it. If numbers of dead make a difference, it seems to me that I um, on the psalm in World War One, the worst day of battle was about sixty thousand uh, casualties. Dead. Twenty thousand okay. dead. Yeah, yes. it was sixty thousand casualties. That's incredible. Yeah, so. that wiped. I think Tolkien was at Passchendaele. That, that wiped out that whole generation. That created modernism. In, I mean, there was it was there in art, in music, in literature. But after mm -hmm. Passchendaele and the Psalm and Verdun, poems would no longer rhyme. There would no longer be a poetic vocabulary. Nobody would know what a hexameter was. There was going to be performance art, impressionistic art, um, representational art, but not art that captured what the eye actually saw. And no. it was just, it was, you know... The well, French always student. talk about a lost generation. They lamented. Yeah, yeah. it was Decus and Decorum Espo, Patria Mori, that line from Horace, and then detached. Was it Siegfried Sassoon or Wilfred Owen? The it old was Wilfred Owen, uh, Wilfred Owen. The yeah. old lie. Mm -hmm. And what would you say if 20,000 were told to get up over the trenches and they got killed? For what? How? Well, I guess it was to stop the Prussian war machine, which they succeeded at. But there could have been a better way than killing 20,000 people in one day. Yeah. Or All right. Was well, there, Victor, or was there, anyway, we'll go ahead. We'll, we'll get. Yeah, we'll get back to World War Two, in fact, in just a little while. But um, some of the news first, I, I maybe I, I'm always looking for something inspirational. But this time, if I can't find inspiration, at least funny. Uh, I read on Powerline that George Stephanopoulos was shocked at the polls after all of these um, indictments of Trump that it's 46 to 46 Biden to Trump in the polls. And I was wondering if you had any reflections on that he left wing is, yeah, hack, is, if that's not too harsh a word. He is shocked. This is a guy that, that says he's a journalist that came right out of the Clinton war room. Remember, he was the Clinton rapid response head of the war room. And what was his job to do was lie about Bill Clinton in 1992. No, he did not sleep with that woman. No, that bimbo eruption, that was not him. No, that, you know, that he didn't do that. No, that's all he did. All he did was lie about Bill Clinton's past. And that was a rapid response. And yeah. So he's now a quote unquote journalist for 30 years and he's shocked that after Joe Biden is mentioned by his son as Mr. 10 percent, the big guy getting half the money after Victor Shilkin said he probably took a bribe after an oligarch says he has two things, two voice recordings that Joe Biden was there after there's 20 million dollars they think uh, was hidden that came into the Biden coffers after the IRS whistleblowers said they were closing the net on Joe Biden's tax and Hunter's tax evasion after Devin Archer and Tony Bobolinsky swore that Joe Biden's an abject liar, that he knew about Hunter's business. In fact, he was involved in it, given all that evidence. He's, and then you look at Joe Biden and he cannot finish the sentence. His syntax is non-existent. He can't walk very well. He whispers or shouts. Um, and George Stephanopoulos is shocked that half the country would prefer Donald Trump to him. 
I wonder why that would be, George. Wouldn't have anything to do with it. You have the most corrupt man and president in history, and you have a a person who is non compos mentes and was foisted upon us with lies that he was saying. And then you have Donald Trump, a flawed individual, but had a record of four years of successful governance, despite the Mueller investigation, the hot, the fake laptop, the fake ping in the bank, all of that stuff, fake impeachment, first impeachment. And he's shocked. <laughs> what do you think people are going to do? Oh, Donald Trump tweets bad. Oh, Fannie Willis has got him. Oh, Jack Smith. And so for every one of those indictments, George, half the country says this. Well, if Donald Trump took out classified information, that's wrong. But how about Joe Biden? He did it as a senator and a vice president, and he's had it for 15 years, not two, and three locations, not one. And he had no legal right to declare them unclassified, unlike the president did. Oh, he made a phone call and he said, fine. He didn't say invent. He said, fine, i.e. they're existing somewhere. You just have to call a local registrar's and see if there's missing ballots. Ooh, he was election interference. Mm, and there were electors that were altered. Wouldn't be like a bunch of actors on the DNC prompt in 2016 saying, dear electors, we're running a publicity campaign to have you violate your constitutional duties and vote against Donald Trump, despite the popular tally in your state. Hmm. Or Jill Stein. Hmm, I'm going to sue to throw out the the counts in various states because I think the Dominion voting machines are fraudulent. Ooh, we're going to indict her, too. Oh, will you say. Well, there's Lakita James, Victor. Yes, and Donald Trump is the only real estate mogul in New York City that took out a loan and put his assets down as security, and he exaggerated the value, and then he paid the loan off anyway, and you're going to indict him for that. Well, how about Alvin Bragg? Alvin Bragg. Oh, he's got him on a felony uh, campaign violation. He gave some things to Stormy and, uh, you know, he, he did improper accounting on it. That was all that is. Accounting. It wouldn't be like Hillary Clinton, Clinton breaking the law by feloniously hiring a foreign national or maybe two, Mr. Dishenko and Mr. Steele. And what was their job is to invent lies and disinformation and misinformation to smear her candidate. And how did she pay for it? By hiding it through the DNC, Perkins Coe, fusing GPS. And what do you do when you catch her red-handed? And she hasn't had time to destroy 30,000 emails like she did a little bit earlier with complete impunity. And she didn't get the sledgehammers out to smash everything like she did earlier when they were under subpoena. You fine her $100,000. That's why people, George, are angry. It's asymmetrical. Yeah, and they don't believe Donald Trump did anything differently than any of these candidates do. But they believe people like you cannot trust to have a transparent, fair election because the dregs, the chumps, the irredeemables, the deplorables, the clingers might not vote for your bicoastal clones. And I wonder why that would be. Hmm. I wonder why that would be, George. 
And uh, maybe you should go over to East Palestine, Ohio, and see how people live for a change. Or go to Bakersfield or go to Dayton and just get out of that corridor and see what it means to go out and work all day plumbing or stringing Lomax on your house or doing any of those things and then being told that you're a loser, you're a racist, you're this, you're that. Maybe you get angry as the rate of inflation goes up much higher than your wages and you can't live in Kalorama or Martha's Vineyard. Or you look at the Wall Street Journal online and what's one of their chief popular features? A mansion. So look at today's mansion, French Riviera, Lake Cuomo, Tahoe Shores. Ooh, it looks great. Ooh, it's 12 million, 15 million. Wow, that thank you, Wall Street Journal. That's really nice of you to have a, sh- uh, a nice feature about all the multi-million dollar mansions and how tastefully they're decorated. I think I'll buy one in East Palo. Come on. Yeah, I know. Well, let's let's um, move forward because I, I, Powerline said he has Trump derangement syndrome, and it's as evident as ever since he can't see all the stuff you just said much more clearly than than Caroline actually wrote it out. But um, can we uh, look at, there's a, a article by Charles Lipson in the American spectator called Biden impeachment inquiry looms. And it talks all about the possibility of impeachment. And then the, the kind of quandary that Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are in. And they state it like this, that there are three things, that the Republicans are worried about and need to watch for. One, they have to have enough evidence and be compelling. Two, they need to persuade independents who are getting tired of this mutual investigation back and forth. And then three, that the Republicans don't appear to lose sight of the critical issues of, i.e., the economy and those types of things. And so I was wondering what your thoughts on it was a very good article. I highly recommend it to everybody. But what what are your thoughts on that, Victor? Is that all McCarthy needs to worry about? Yeah, it was a very good article. Um, It's a political decision all when to start impeachment. So what you don't want to do is impeach Joe Biden and not have concrete data. And so what do I mean by that? So you go to impeach him and you say, well, here's the IRS whistleblowers, but you need the data from them, right? Proof. And then you say, well, here's Tony Bobolinsky and Devin Archer. Then we need to corroborate what they've said. And then we got to look at the laptop and say, this is exactly what he said, this and this. And we need where the 20 million went. So what we really need are those four thousand emails that were addressed to Hunter under pseudonyms by Joe Rosemont. They went to Rosemont mostly. And when you say the oligarchs, when Shokin said that he took a bribe, so we need to get those tapes from the oligarchs that say they have 17. That's all I'm saying. I think it's all 100 percent open and shut case, but it's a political challenge. So when you go before the nation and you want to get that information and they're not going to want to give it to you. So what you do now is you say you're having an impeachment inquiry and then you get a little bit more avenue and a little bit more clout and pressure for the National Archives to fork over those emails or for banks to fork over that data or for the IRS to start releasing things as the whistleblowers allege. And then you ramp it up slowly. And so I think that that's what he's trying to do. And I know there's a lot of 
anger that they haven't impeached him yet, but we've got to make sure that we don't do what they did. Or maybe some of you are saying, well, we should do what they did. They impeached Trump on nothing. And I said, I know it, but we want to get him dead set. And then there's the other problem, and that is a lesser problem, so that you bring this evidence and then you've got a year and a half, you can impeach him. And then you, you're not going to convict him with 60 votes. You only have 49. But, but if those emails are what they may be, that, hey, Hunter, where's the money or we're going to put it here, then that's going to be a lot of pressure on Democratic senators that are up for re-election, especially in iffy district, iffy states, I should say. And then what do you do? You've taken Joe out of the equation and you've given the country to Kamala Harris. And is that good for the country or good for the Republican Party or both or bad? You know what I'm saying? Will she be will she get the advantage of being an incumbent going into a real an election or will she screw up everything and help the Republican but hurt the country? So you gotta it, there's a it's a it's a minefield and we've got to be very careful how he does this. So I think he's doing the right thing by having an inquiry and then getting that all his ducks in a row, so to speak. And yeah. then maybe by the first of the year he's got a whole year to impeach him. And I think he's also thinking that since these people introduced the idea of weaponizing lawfare and the election and these bogus prosecutions are going to be synchronized with the campaign primaries and we'll do the same. So if they're going to have Donald Trump on trial on, you know, uh, the big Tuesday, mega Tuesday primary, then maybe we'll have an actual impeachment open that day. That's what they want to do. Of course, the left is the left. It's infantile. How can you dare do that? Why would you ever think you could have a an impeachment inquiry and time it just to the, the primary? <laughs> that would be yes. so low. That's why how democracy dies in darkness. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So, they're like a petulant adolescent, and they yeah. always believe everything revolves around them, and they're morally superior, and they need to have this, and you would never do to them what they do to you because you're stupid and unimaginative and not sophisticated and cosmopolitan like they are. Mm. What do you think of the them. independence, like the position of the independence? Is that just a wild card, or is there any – you think that if there's enough evidence, then they'll, the more of the independence will be swayed to stay away from the left? or um, They have to persuade the independence, and the independence um, are sick of it. They're sick of the tit-for-tat lawfare. And so they have to be, it's, they can't just cut open the, the Biden body. They have to be surgical about it. And they have to do it in such a way that they're not, the independence says this is a corrective for the abuse of this administration. This is not a blunderbuss, just slaughter Biden. But they have, and so what I mean by that, if you go back and revisit the first impeachment, there was no special prosecutor. Mueller was all through. There was no special Leon, you know, Jaworski or, you know, Starr, none of that. 
There was no special prosecutor that investigated. There was no cross-examination. There were no witnesses. They just impeached him. They did it quickly in December and was quick. And it came and it was even, oh, Mueller said he's innocent. Hmm. We said for two years that the walls were closing and we spent $40 million. Well, let's just go to impeachment then because Mr. Vindman violated the law and he broke his classified uh, status and he reported a classified phone call to Mr. Saramella. And therefore, we're going to impeach him. And that's what they did. And if the Republicans do that, they won't win the independence. So that's why they're trying to take the higher ground. So it's very hard to take the higher ground with these people because there's they don't learn when you take the higher ground. No, no. Uh, you, you know, another article that I was looking at was talking about the I hadn't thought about this aspect of it, but that the Biden administration has set up a war room for possible impeachment charges against him. And that's been going on for three months. But what they said was, and this was a left wing newspaper, that it would be done on the Cl- Bill Clinton model, this war room. And I was wondering, what does that mean, the Bill Clinton model? And then what does this mean for taxpayers? Do we have to finance all of this stuff for him? <laughs> What do you mean by that? Well, are the taxpayers paying for his lawyers to defend himself. So this war room is our, our, is, we're I'm being in facetious. He, okay. They're doing it for us. He's our president. They're <laughs> yeah. trying to defend it from crazy right-wing clingers that are trying to obstruct the brilliant agendas of Joe Biden. So, of course, he's got lawyers. They're legal counsel. Yeah, Donald Trump is he spent 50 and I think he's going to end up spending 150 million. That's the point. That's what this government does when you have the administrative state. They try to grind you down because they have all of the accounting on their side. And that's what these prosecutors do. And that's what they're doing to Donald Trump, but not to Joe Biden. No, no, he's going to have government lawyers and maybe I don't know. You say, well, this was something personal and he's in he's not it's not the role of the White House. This is what he did as vice president. And it's a prior offense. And then it's kind of like saying, what would he say? Well, Hunter Biden's not doing private things on Air Force Two. He was helping me navigate the complexity of Ukraine. So it's the same thing. They're going to do what they got to do, and they'll and they'll make the necessary adjustment. Yeah. Well. Uh, so, what do you think it means for the taxpayer? But what does a Bill Clinton model um, mean as well? They're going to go out after people and malign their characters and et cetera. Um, and then, what we're going to pay millions of dollars for this kind of stuff? Is that what we should just come to expect and live with it? live with it <laughs> we're living with it <laughs> this i i just think that what i'm trying to i'm not trying to be sarcastic but i'm all i'm saying is that this administration by any standard is the most corrupt we've ever seen because there is no way that joe biden or jill biden or jim biden or hunter biden can match the lifestyle with the income uh, that they reported. It's impossible. So they either broke the law and lied about their income or 
they got m- money under the table and, wh- and whatever it is, they're guilty of tax evasion and they're guilty of some type of influence peddling or bribery. And that's a fact. And there's also a fact that Joe Biden is the most d- d- disabled president since Woodrow Wilson. And he is one step, one severe co- COVID about one bad flu away from oblivion. And that's a fact. He can no longer work five days a week. He can't work four days a week. He can't work three days a week. He can work 10 to two, three days a week. And 40% of the time he's been in office, he's been on vacation. So if there's a tragedy in East Palestine, he said, I can't be able to fit in my schedule. If there's something in Maui, you think he's going to do what Ron DeSantis did? Go, you know, just immediately get everybody galvanized, go there and visit the whole state like he did? No, he's not going to go to Maui. He's not going to do any of that. He can't. That's what's so weird about it. He cannot do it. It's, I mean, I I think at a period in my life when I got COVID and I had long COVID, I, I had no zero energy. If I was president, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even walk hardly. So that's what he is. He's a long COVID case. He can't do it. And every so we're in a unique situation. We've never had such a corrupt president and such a disabled president at the same time. And then yeah. we have the Democratic Party that has an agenda through this president that they're ecstatic about because they took the Obama, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, hard left squad, whatever this ridiculousness is. And they force fed it through the mouth of Joe Biden, good old Joe from Scranton. And so I'm going to unite everybody. I'm good old Joe Bo from Scranton. I'm kind of a moderate Democrat. And that was all a joke. And then they staffed his entire administration with leftover Obamaites. And, and so that's where we are. And they're going to do anything they can. They hijacked the government of the United States through this vehicle or puppet of called Joe Biden. This facsimile. He doesn't exist as a president. He's a construct. And we're being run by hard leftist and they're not going to give up power if they can help it and that's where we are and they've got a debilitated corrupt person and if he ever says anything like in a moment of clarity hey barack i'm not going to appoint that judge that you told me i have to appoint hey bernie i don't think that that legislation you want is is tolerable hey elizabeth i don't think we can quite do that one of them is going to say hey joe (laughs) Remember that email you wrote or remember that archive or remember this? They, you're corrupt. Remember that? We know you're corrupt. And so that's where we are. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and then come back and talk again about World War II and the end of World War II. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We're back. Um, Victor has a website. It is victorhanson.com. You can come join it. Uh, $5 for a month and you will get the VDH Ultra articles, which are three a week. And so lots of re- new reading material just for our subscribers. And it you can join for an annual $50 a year. So please come join us. We also have a free subscription and you can get a newsletter that will let you know all the new things that come on and many of them are free. So come join us at victorhanson.com. The name of the website is The Blade of Perseus. So come join us. So Victor, um, one one plug too for your book, The Second World Wars. We highly recommend Victor's written a compendium of information and new ideas about World War II. And again, it's called The Second World Wars. We finished up last time with the end of World War II, but we were so short of time, I didn't have time to ask you some questions. So I hope you don't mind if I ask a couple of questions before Go we ahead. enter into the legacy. Yeah. Um, why the, the first one is, why were the French so weak? I know that we often say, well, the German Germans enacted the Schlieffen Plan Redux, basically, and really did it well this time. But the French should have been more than ready for him, it seems like. But what, what is your analysis of that? It's a tragedy. And as Mark Bloch wrote when he was a prisoner, a great medieval historian, he wrote that great essay. It's not really a book. It's an essay, you know, Strange Defeat. And he, he wrestled with that. What was he wrestling with? In World War One, the bulwark of the West was the indomitable French army. And for all of its mutinies and all of its tragedies, it did not break. And the Germans did not get, did not break through to the coast. They almost did in the spring offensive, but they were stopped. And so during the 20s and 30s, the thinking of the Western democracies was there is the French army and it's a million strong and it can get up to 4 million. And then they built the Maginot line up to the Belgian border. And everybody makes fun of the Maginot Line, but the Germans really never went through it. They tried to go over it, and and they only penetrated after basically the, the defenses had collapsed. So the question is, on May 10th of 1940, they knew he was coming. So when he went through the Netherlands and he went into Belgium, and by the way, the French were perfectly willing to continue the Maginot Line across the Belgian border, but the Belgians objected. And said, you can't fence us out. And the Ardennes, you don't need it because the Ardennes, they can't take panzers to the Ardennes. And so stop it right at the Ardennes and do not turn left and and keep us out. That was a mistake. The French should have because the Belgians, like the Dutch, were overrun very quickly. But why, why was that? Because when you look at the actual wherewithal of the French, the tanks, the Char tank was better than the Mark III, and there were very few Mark IVs. And it, it was as good as the Mark IV. It had a 75-millimeter gun, I guess it did, or 76. 
and it had heavy armor and it was good. And their plane, their fighter planes were as good, if not better than the BF-109. And they had almost as many soldiers available. They had some, you know, some good generals, not the ones in command, but people like de Gaulle. And you can't make fun of the French fighting man because they had done so well in uh, World War one, and then when we were liberating France in June, in July, and August of 1944, we immediately started to incorporate the so-called Free French. We got up to 500,000 soldiers in Tassignet and Leclerc. They were brilliant French commanders, and the French armored divisions were excellent. So what happened? Why, why did this indomitable army just indomitable army just collapse? And I guess it was Mark Block said they didn't want to win. They didn't. Again, the people who won World War One were traumatized, and the people who lost World War One were not. And so, there they had been invaded, and they had won the war with Germans on their soil, and they had never really humiliated and sent the Germans back into Germany and occupied. And the Germans kept rubbing that in. And then during the socialist period of the 20s and 30s, Verdun was recalibrated from they shall not pass a glorious moment in French history into a modernist nightmare where nearly a million casualties were inflicted for a stupid fort. That's what they thought. And so all of that, you know, that 1920s gay Paris were, you know, Hemingway and... F. Scott Fitzgerald and all these great writers were there. That was a period kind of like Weimar, Germany. And World War I was considered proof of the decadence of Western civilization and all of its manifestations. And they were never going to do that again. And so when people enlisted, they were not the same. They didn't have the same ideas they did in 1914 because they'd been through 1914, 15, 16, 17, 18. And they had a, they didn't understand the German army. The German army was not that, it was not at that point in 1940 where it was in 1943. By that I mean it didn't have Mark IV tanks everywhere and Panthers and Focke-Wolf 190s and hardened veterans. It was a bully that used the proximity to Germany and the road system and the affluence of Western Europe to pile up victories, first in Poland, then Norway, then Denmark, then the low countries of Luxembourg and Holland and Belgium and France, and then the Balkans, Yugoslavia, and then Greece and Crete, and then what? They went into the Soviet Union, and all of a sudden the roads weren't too good, and the supply lines were long, and there was a lot more Soviet soldiers than there were German, and the T-34 was as good or better than the Mark IV. And there were all sorts of new weaponry, like rockets, and they didn't do very well. And they didn't do very well in Sicily. They were pretty good in Italy on the defense, but my point is they were never capable of fighting a global war in the fashion of the British, the Americans, or the Soviets. Just because they were Germany, they only had 80 million people, and they didn't have the industrial base, but nobody really understood that. 
And so the French felt they were all by themselves and they were up against the entire German empire, so to speak. But actually, they could have stopped them. And they, they killed over 20,000 Germans, don't make, make no mistake. And they probably, along with Spitfire pilots, destroyed maybe five or 600 aircraft. And when you look at the blitz that started in August after the defeat of January 23rd, 25th, I mean, June 23rd, 25th, they lost another thousand planes in what they considered a devastating attack on London. And then when you add the Yugoslavian campaign, the Greek campaign, especially the invasion of Crete, one of the reasons they didn't take Moscow was they had lost probably 40,000 casualties, 50,000 casualties. They'd lost about 20% of their transport. They'd lost a, a thousand fighters. And had they not suffered those casualties and gone straight in to the Soviet Union, they would be a lot, they would have been a lot better off. So what I'm getting at is the French did some good in their defeat. Mm. They 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 did some good. They and they weren't just, I don't know what to say. They were a demoralized people because they felt they were all alone. And they yeah. didn't think the United States was coming in. As you know, Wilson kept they thought Wilson eventually would get there. And yeah. they and they thought the British the British put over three hundred thousand troops, but they thought that the British air all of the British air power would be invested in France, and they couldn't do that. They had to protect London, so they didn't bring over all of their air power. They would have had no reserves, and the United States was belatedly giving them war supplies. So they felt they were all alone, and they were when Germany went. And to Poland, they were naked on the Western Front. They put the, all of their resources to destroy Poland from September 1st, basically to the end of September. And when the Soviets came in and finished Poland off. But at that point, the French went into the Saarland and there was no opposition. If the French had taken that million man army and left the Maginot line, they could have gone way into Germany and done a lot of damage, but they didn't do it. They were, they, they were dropping leaflets. The British were bombing Germany with leaflets all of the first two weeks of September. Dear German people, we are your friends. You have been taken over by a madman. He is leading you to a war you won't win. Please stop. That's what we did, the French and the, German, and the British. And remember, on May 10th, it wasn't just that Germany invaded France. Winston Churchill finally took over as prime minister. And then things started to change. It was too late for France, but not too late for the British. So they did win the Battle of Britain because of Churchill. Well, I I, I think that, you know, sort of, um, you know, the other face to the coin from the French with their lack of morale would be the Germans when they were invading France with their overconfidence. I remember reading in Martin Gilbert's book, The Second World War, the, that Rommel wrote back to his family, well, he's in the midst of this invasion. He writes, oh, it looks like we'll be here maybe another two weeks and I'll be home for a vacation stay. You know, like just casually, you know, observing the French defeat. And well, he we got swam. two weeks. He swam. When he got to a river, he swam it, Rommel did. He was a division commander. He didn't even have a, he had been in the bodyguard of the Fuhrer and he was given a command and nobody really recognized his genius until 
they sent him in 1940 to North Africa. And then they said, you're a distraction from the Soviet Barbarossa project. Yeah. He was a genius, Rommel. He was kind of a mad genius. But there's a lot of mythologies about Rommel, that he was an anti-Nazi. No, he was part of Hitler's bodyguard. Yeah. But he was a very gifted person. The other problem with the French is that their command structure, they were all in their 70s from World War One, And people like de Gaulle that had studied Blitzkrieg in the 1930s and had been instrumental in getting the Shar tank and things like that and close air support. They were, and de Gaulle helped stage a, a brief counterattack that ha- actually was pretty good, but um, they were in the minority and it was a top-down chateau generalship and it was tragic. And one of the things when you look at uh, I'll probably pronounce it if I remember it. It was the De Wontenay, uh five. You know, it was they had a a French fighter plane that was I think it was the D D five twenty something. To, anyway, it looks sort of like an American P forty or even somewhat like the the uh, French. I mean, the British Spitfire, and it was a very. It was a, it had that Hispano Suze engine. It was a wonderful plane. But the problem was this, that when you look at the number of missions they flew every day during that terrible six weeks, the French were flying two missions per fighter plane. Wow. And the Luftwaffe was outnumbered by Spitfires and De Wante and De Wanten, uh French aircraft, both of which the Spitfires and the De Wanten were better planes than the BF-109. And yet the the Luftwaffe were flying from long grass fields, makeshift, and they were flying five and six, seven missions a day. Yeah. And that, that was the problem. And uh, the Germans were coming with gasoline tankers so that their tanks that were not as good as the shark tank, they were being refueled and on the move. They were just... You can see when how the British got away from Dunkirk because, you know, Goering said, let me have them, and the Luftwaffe will take care of them. Everybody said, well, Hitler, Hitler blew it. He shouldn't have listened to that old cocaine addict, and he, the Luftwaffe couldn't do it, and over 300,000 people got away, and these are the same soldiers that would revisit the Nazis in North Africa and Sicily, all true, but they were exhausted. So people forget that. The German army, by the time it was... By the time it was to attack that pocket of 300,000 Allied troops stuck at Dunkirk, they were exhausted. They had been on the move for six weeks. Yeah. And uh, they were short of supplies, food. And I'm not sure, even if they had gone there, they would be able to break through that. It was kind of like the Pusan pocket in, in Korea, that it looks like it's easy to crack, but the North Koreans couldn't get rid of the Americans either. Yeah. It would have been it would have been difficult. So yeah, it was um, the fr- French are. I mean, that it seems crazy, but the French fighter plane of 1940, 1940 could dive at five hundred miles. Every 
every aspect or every calibration of what makes a fighter good, the French had it. And the same was true of their tanks and their artillery were good. And it's just tragic that they had not been able to inculcate the same martial prowess that or morale that they had in World War I. Or maybe it was because of World I they were not, or socialism or whatever we want to say. But when you look at the actual man-to-man, plane-to-plane, gun-to-gun, tank-to-tank, that's why Mark Walk said strange defeat. It, it was just it was just didn't make sense given the record of France. I guess somebody's going to say, well, they lost the 1870-70, the Franco-Prussian War, so you should have known what they were going to do. But that was before World War One, and they they survived World War One. They're very well, then, mysterious. Oh, we always okay. make joke, jokes about them. We say, oh, you know, why do French tanks only have one gear reverse, you know, stuff like that. But they're, they, they rise to the occasion. They're very capable people militarily. I mean, there is somebody called Napoleon, remember? And <laughs> so you really see the French in 1944 and the end of the year in 45, once they were given American equipment and they were on the winning side and they were, they were wonderful. They, they, they performed wonderfully. The free French forces under the third army, for example, yeah, Patton would always make fun of them. Well, they're on the Paris. Let the hell, let the sons of bitches go in and take Paris. They deserve it. And <laughs> but he couldn't control them. But uh, there were jokes about them that they had better food and they drank wine after the battle and everything. And of course, but they were. I don't know. I, it is a very strange phenomenon. That's why poor Mark Walking. That was sad too because they. The, they, they executed him, what, 10 days before he was going to be liberated or something like that. Yeah, that was Great a very sad story. And, yeah. and he smuggled out his manuscript explaining what happened. What happened. Yeah. Well, then that leads me to a second question and also to our end, the resolution of World War II. Um, the You know, we always hear about this Atlantic wall, and I've never really heard or read anything on, it seems to me that's a huge expanse, and it seems to me that it should have been full of holes, but they always talk about it as the formidable, and then, you know, they add that to why D-Day was such a, you know, extraordinary um, invasion, and I was wondering what your assessment of that Atlantic wall was. Well, it was never finished. And so once they they took um, Europe, and as I said on the earlier podcast, they had all of the major capitals. They had all of Europe under their control. And Hitler's idea was from Norway, basically on the North Sea coast, up to near Norway, all the way to the Spanish border, they were going to make an Atlantic wall. Now, what was that? That was going to be a series of uh, Rommel asparagus, those welded together. They looked like jacks and, you know, they were very, they were to tear up ships at high tide when they wouldn't see them. And then the beaches were going to be covered with mines. And then there was going to be a seawall reinforced concrete with fortifications and gun emplacements. And then there were going to be barracks and stations of fast mobile reserves of panzers. And the idea would be 
there would be no way you could unload soldiers. And if you did it low tide and you saw the obstacles that would tear the ships up, then they were going to be slaughtered on the beach. If you waited to high tide so that they could get out and go right to the seawall, they were the boat, the impediments would destroy the, the landing crowd. But only 20, I think 20, 25% of all that was finished by D-Day. And so there was, it was a joke. It was, a, it was just part of German propaganda, the Atlantic Wall. There was no such thing. And um, the Allies knew that. And so the problem with Omaha Beach as compared to Utah or Sword or Juno or Gold was the Allies had miscalculated that in that particular beach, there were more minefields. There was a the cliffs were higher. The seawall was in better shape. There were more Germans than they thought. And the weather, they didn't quite get all of the people at the sites at the time they thought. And so really D-Day was an astounding success, asterisk Omaha Beach. Take away Omaha Beach and it was wonderful. So a, a high percentage of casualties were on Omaha Beach only. Utah Beach, I think they, they lost less than 200 killed. But Omaha was just a nightmare. And, but that wasn't, that wasn't characteristic of the whole Atlantic Wall. I don't know what would have happened if they went into Calais. The idea was it's only 26 miles from the British coast. And you look at the map, it's a straight shot in, you know, across northern France into Holland, right through Belgium. I mean, right into uh, the Germans, rather than making this long hook to the south. But the Germans were waiting for them. They kept thinking it would be at Calais. They always thought it was going to be at Calais. They thought it was Calais at Calais when they were murdering Americans and shooting them on Omaha. They kept saying, no, don't. It's still coming at Calais. It wasn't. But that was part of the genius of DDA, that they fooled them utterly. And it's very funny about the Germans. You know, they're so confident. But on every aspect of D-Day, when you look at the meteorology, the British meteorologists knew about the storms much more than the Germans. They were all on reserve. Rommel wasn't even there. They were on maneuvers. And Rommel was visiting his family. He said, oh, it's June June." Fourth, fifth, sixth—it's—it's it's bad, and you know. And then there were good commanders, the people who organized. Eisenhower was a very good administrator. When they said, you know, should we go in the sixth? We can wait two weeks. He said, how do we know the weather's not going to be bad in two weeks? And then actually, it was much worse in two weeks than it was on the sixth. Let's go, and that—that that took a lot of initiative and courage. So they had British, good British and American planners. They had better meteorologists, the Germans, when they were confronted, and somebody's going to say, well, they had all the advantages. They were winning, Victor. The Germans were on the defensive. Yeah, and the Germans had won in 1940. They had all of the EU and the NATO countries under their control by August 1940. And all they had to do was operate Operation Sea Lion. And all they had to do was go the 26 miles like William the Conqueror, Julius Caesar, and take Britain, and they had all the, and they couldn't do it. They didn't have the landing craft. They didn't have the organization. They didn't have the leadership. They didn't have air supremacy. And yet there was no America in the war. 
and the Soviet Union was supplying them with their fuel and their food and doing their best to make sure the Germans destroyed Britain as they had France. They had all the advantages. And we, the Americans, were not even in the war yet. We hadn't really started Lend-Lease yet. And the British stopped the entire Wehrmacht in a way that the Germans could not stop us. So you got to look at it in that context. The, yeah. the Allies were just wonderful about cooperating with each other. And the, the Axis were suspicious of each other. They didn't trust each other. You know, think of it, an alliance. <laughs> it's, it's very funny. The Japanese are fighting Zhukov in August 1939, and all of a sudden these Russian soldiers start popping up. And the Japanese say, what the? What's going on here? Oh, by the way, Japanese allies, we signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union behind your back, and they're sending thousands of troops from their frontier worried about us to fight you. And then the Japanese <laughs> say, okay, what the F? So when you, right before they went into Soviet Union, the, the Germans say, what the F? The Japanese in April signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviets? They're not going to invade ever from the East? They, they didn't want to, of course, too. They didn't want them picking the carcass of the Soviet Union, but later they did. And the Japanese, and then Mussolini says, wait a minute, you invaded Russia yesterday? You didn't tell me. I thought we were going to work on Malta and everything and North Africa and our Italian maritime empire in the Mediterranean. And what did the Germans say? Well, screw you. We were all ready to go in. And what did you do? You invaded Greece and diverted everything. And we had to go down and bail you out. So they were all mutually suspicious of each other. And they didn't trust each other. And they were screwing each other over in a way that we and the British worked together. And for all the horrendous crimes of Stalin, we did work with him and coordinated things. So it was just very odd. Yeah. And it, anyway, and then we had the Yalta ag Agreement. And uh, we agreed on how to divide up the world. And then things fell apart because it was very clear that somebody had 400 divisions in the east. And they were when Yalta took place, they were 100 miles from Berlin. And we were saying, oh, my God, we gave this guy 25 percent of his war material. And he was fighting on the Nazi side against Poland and helping Britain lose the defeat Britain, and then he became our ally. And we didn't, we just said, no problem, Stalin, we'll forgive you for that treachery. And then we gave him all this stuff, and we've been bombing all of, we lost 80,000 British and American airmen to bomb Germany to take the pressure off Stalin. And they brought 10,000, the Germans had to take back 10,000 88 millimeter guns and use them as flat guns to kill Americans and British so they wouldn't kill Soviets. We did that for you, Joseph. And now you want all of Eastern Europe, and you say you're going to have election, you're violating all of these accords at Yalta. So that was a big shock. Big shock. But, what, you know, we weren't, we weren't in a position to, once you were on the side of the Soviet Union at Yalta, there were the facts on the ground that they were a steamroller and they were going to win, thanks partly to us. And you couldn't really stop them because they were reasserting who they really were now they were, that they were in control. And so we kind of gave them Eastern Europe and then hit, uh, Churchill said, well, along with 
you know, we, we're not going to fight you with the Polish elections, the Czech elections, the Romanian elections, uh, the Yugoslavian elections, the Hungarian elections, but we're going to take Turkey and Greece and they're going to be Western. And then we'll agree with you that Finland and Austria will be neutral and nobody can, they won't join your side or right. And that was about as best as we could get. Well, I have a question. You write in your book, the, um, this, this, it's, it's at the end and you're, you're trying to assess World War II and you write the proper moral appraisal of World War II is not as nuanced as we sometimes are led to believe. And you go on to talk about the, Axis powers were um, very brutal. What do you What do you say? You say um, they institutionalized savage, savagery and brutal, brutality that the Allies did not. But the Allies responded with terrible retribution, masked as liberationist idealism, aimed aimed at destroying, not defeating fascism, with without much worry of what the likely consequences of their disparate alliance would mean for the post-war world. For the victors, the way the war was fought and ended was not perfect, but just good enough given the alternative world of a horrifying Axis victory. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more. Well, I explain is here we were trying to go and reclaim Europe. And so what are we going to do to invade France? We got to bomb it before we invade. Soften it up. How do you soften it up when Germans are interspersed with Frenchmen? So from the occupation of late June 1940 to four years later, we killed British and American bombing. We killed more Frenchmen than the Germans did in their occupation. And we had to. That's what Churchill said. We blew up the French fleet, the British did, I should say, in North Africa and killed, I think, I don't know what it was, 13, 1400 French, Frenchmen, just so that the ships would not fall into the hands of Hitler. And our attitude about the Japanese were, was, well, they're killing 15 million Chinese and another four or five million uh, allies and Pacific Islanders, Philippines, Malaysians, et cetera, et cetera. And they're ruthless people and they won't stop. So we're going to burn down the urban core of Japan. And why we criticized Bomber Harris and the British, we said, you're being savage at Dresden and Hamburg, which we joined in at Dresden and later at Hamburg. We, Hamburg, we don't believe in area bombing. We believe in Norden bombsite precision bombing. So we go over to Japan and we say, you know what? This B-29 program cost, cost twice what the Manhattan Project did. And how do you drop a bomb with a nor upgraded Norden bomb site when your pilot has flown 800 uh, eight hours and 1,600 miles, and he's got eight more hours to get home and another 1,600 miles, and he's over the target for just five minutes, and the wind is blowing at 40 400, 300, we're, excuse me, the wind is blowing at over 100 miles an hour, and you're at 28,000 feet, and your plane is now going three to 400 miles an hour, and you're dropping these on the Norden bomb site, and these high explosives don't hit the target. 
and you're losing too many planes. And suddenly a guy named Curtis LeMay said, this is crazy. I, forget about area bombing. We're going to do it. We don't care what you say. I know we're hypocrites. We criticize the British, but we're going to come up with a formula. And that formula is there's a new thing called napalm. It's better than any other incendiary in the world, incendiary, and we're going to use it. And we're going to take these damn B-29s and we're going to bring them down to five, 6,000 feet. And the jet stream is going to be our friend, not our enemy, because we're just going to take a bunch of DuPont napalm and we're going to drop 20,000 pounds per plane. And when it hits the wooden uh, infrastructure of Japan, the wind will do all the good instead of all the bad. But it won't blow the bombs off target. We'll get close enough at that low altitude, and then the wind will whip up the flames, and napalm cannot be put out with water. And we're going to burn. And if you know what? If you say that we're monsters, we're just going to drop a bunch of leaflets before and say, hey, Japanese civilians, you're going to reap the whirlwind. It's coming. So we suggest you all leave your cities. And then if they don't leave your cities, we'll say, well, they decentralized their industry. All true. They took a, you know, a Raiden fighter and they put the propeller in one neighborhood assembly and then people were making landing gear in another. And we just burned them all and said, well, it's war, war production. And when we're all done, we killed about 400,000 of them. Did that generation worry about? No. They said, you're killing people. You're murdering them. You're barbaric. Slaughtering Chinese, you're slaughtering Malaysians, you're slaughtering Filipinos, you're slaughtering Americans. You're, and we're not going. We fought you on Iwo Jima. We fought you at Peleliu. We fought you at Okinawa. You do not surrender, and you're going to pay a price. And then when that seemed to, you know, be working, and we were going to ready to invade, all of a sudden they thought, you know, crazy Curtis LeMay wants to bring over, as I said last time, all the B-24s, B-17s, Lancasters he can get his hands on. He wants to burn the whole country down, and let's just end it now. Let's just drop two bombs on it. And that generation had no problems with that. That's what I meant. And then when it was over, they thought, you know what? We're not saints. We never claimed we were. We didn't start it. We finished it. And they're never going to do it again. And I know we're never going to do it again because unlike World War One, the SOBs are going to get occupied. And nobody's going to talk about the Versailles Treaty. Oh, the Versailles Treaty had a war clause. Oh, it blamed Germany. Oh, it had reparations. No, 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 no. No, no, we're not going to let them stay in Belgium and Germany and go Germany and Belgium and France and go back to Germany and say, we were, we could have won. You stabbed us in the back, you Jews and social. No, 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 no. We're going to bomb the homeland and make it into a moonscape this time. And then we're going to occupy the country and we're going to put a gun to their head and say, you're going to be a parliamentary democracy, whether you like it or not. And we went into Japan. And we landed and we said, you want another atomic bomb or you want more Curtis LeMay? So you're going to have a democracy and you're going to give women the right to vote and you're going to break up these medieval empires. You do exactly what we say. If you don't, we'll just unleash the B-29s again. And that's how it, that's how they looked at the war. And then they left it to our generation when I was in high school, you know. We were told we had a textbook. So, oh, my God. I came home and I said to my father, were you near the 509th composite group? Yeah, yeah, Victor, I was right next to it. Or we, those guys had it easy. They had new uniforms, new equipment. We didn't know what the hell. They didn't have to go all the way to Tokyo. They, they were just training all the time. I said, they dropped the atomic bomb, Dad. Yeah, yeah, so what? 
I said, well, my God, they killed 60, 70,000. Well, hell, we killed 300,000. We, we killed 100,000 in one night on March 10th and 11th. So what? And I said, well, don't you feel bad? Well, I feel bad, yeah, but not as bad as the people they, that they kill. I'm mad about that. And that was the attitude of that generation. You know, that's what I was trying to convey. His attitude, yeah. he said, you know, I was... I was I wasn't hurting anybody. I was in a farm with Victor Hansen and we were just farm kids. And then we got a scholarship to play football and we went up to University of Pacific and nobody we didn't hurt any Japanese. I like Japanese people in Kingsburg, California. But all of a sudden they bombed Pearl Harbor and they made us go over there. And so we finished it. And they kill a lot of Americans and they're never gonna do it again. That's all I have to say out of that. <laughs> And that was their attitude. And that was a very different attitude from, you know, the pride flag in Kabul, the gender studies program in Kabul, the George Floyd murals in Kabul, and the skedaddle come from Kabul. They would have never done that. For good or evil, they would have never yeah. done that, that generation. Well, let's go ahead and finish this with the last quote and the last lines in your book. And Leave it for your reader, your listeners to chew on, um, because we need to go to our last um, segment. But here it is. The tragedy of World War II, a preventable conflict, was that 60 million people had perished to confirm that the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain were far stronger than the fascist powers of Germany Japan, and Italy after all, a fact that should have been self-evident and in no need of such a bloody laboratory, if not for the prior British appeasement, American isolationism, and Russian collaboration. What an ending. Well, thank you. what I was trying to do, I think all your readers, all our listeners, there was a brilliant Australian. I met him. I don't know if he's still alive, but... Um, he didn't get the credit that he deserved. His name was Jeffrey Blaney, I think, and it was called The Causes of War. And it was a seminal work. And what he said was that war it breaks out when people don't have adequate information. You know what I mean? Yes. So you're in a room, let's say, and there's five chairs. Five people are sitting there. And you're arguing over a card game. But you don't know who is a killer or who is big and strong, you don't, and who will dominate. So you need information. And when you find out, then you may alter your behavior, right? If the guy across the street, the, the guy across says to you, Victor, we're not going to argue with his hand of poker. And he doesn't look very impressive or you don't know, but in fact, he's a British SAS professional killer. <laughs> if you knew that, you would not argue. And so what he's saying is that war is the, it sorts out confusion. So when that war started to take shape, if Hitler had have looked at the United States in World War One, he would have seen that they took two million people from a frontier constabulary pathetic force in 1914, which by the time we declared war in 1917 uh, was starting to be big. But by the time of spring offensive, the Germans, it was a huge army. 
And when you look at American production, it was outpacing France and Britain together by 1918. And it transported those two million without losing one soldier. And when you look at the Soviet Union, the T-34 was there. They had a Christie suspension. It was all there. The Stalin tank, it was all there. They could have seen it. And when they looked at the French, they could have seen that they had superior weapons. They could have seen that the British, when they were bombing the British, the British were producing over 400 airframes a month while they were being bombed. And it was no longer the days of Stanley Baldwin or even Neville Chamberlain. They were, at the end, Neville Chamberlain was arming. So my point is this, that the economic and military potential of the Soviet Union and the British Empire and the United States was so vast and so superior to the pathetic resources of Mussolini's Italy or the militarists in Japan or even Hitler's crazy ideas about Germany. And I, what I mean, wherewithal, look at the population. It was about four to one, five to one advantage ally, economy, 10 to one, technology, 10 to one. And that was all could have been deciphered before Hitler went into Poland. But why did he not know that? Because he chose not to know that. And why was that he enabled? And that's why I finished the way I did. It was three things. The Russians collaborated with him. So they took themselves out of the equation in Hitler's mind. And the British appeased him. In other words, the British and the French were stronger than he was. Together, they were stronger. And yet they appeased him on the Saarland. They appeased him on the Anschluss. They appeased him on the Rhineland militarization. They appeased him on the Sudetenland Munich Agreement. And he came, he called them worms. Can you imagine that? He would regret that because within a year, two years, they were shooting down BF-109s and Heinkel, Dernitz, uh, Doiner's bombers like Butterfly. They were just crushing them. But he didn't think they'd do that because they had appeased him. And then he looked at the United States and he thought, they're just a bunch of cowboys. They'll never come in. And Guderian was bragging that with one division, he could repel any cowboy invasion. And they don't like to fight. But that was because we were isolationists. And had so that just to finish, what if we had reversed that equation? What if in August of 1939, the Soviets had said, screw you, we're not going to sign, we're not going to sign any pact with you. We've got T-34s at 1,500, and we're going to produce 10,000, and they're going to be right on the border with you, so don't screw with us. And why didn't they do that? They did that because they wanted Hitler to turn west, not east, west. And their dream was to have Hitler and Britain and France fight a World War I replay and destroy each other. And this time, the Soviet Union was not going to be involved and get destroyed in the process. They were just going to march west, say, in 1920, and pick up the pieces and control the whole continent. So that's why they did it. And why didn't the British and the French prepare earlier? And they said, their university, Oxford, you know, the famous Oxford vote, the debating society, we would not fight for king and country. Patrick Lee Fremore, the great 
you know, Memorial was, was hiking through Europe when that happened. He said, oh, my God, they don't, they would never fight for king and country. And why didn't we as isolationists, and we said to ourselves, well, you know, we came in late, but we didn't suffer like they did, but we did win the war because we put a million men on the field and we had another million in the pipeline. And that helped stop the German offensive that we went on the offensive. But, you know, what was the purpose? Because here they go again. They did it in 1870, 71. We kept out of it wisely. Then they brought us into World War One. We lost 118,000 dead. And what did they do? They they had the Versailles Treaty, and now Germany, 20 years later, it's replay of World War One. And guess what? They want us to come in again, Britain for his empire, French socialists, and we ain't going to do it. We're tired, so we're not going to do it. And from 39, 40, and 41, we didn't. So we were isolation. But had they all got together and 39 and said, Hitler, Herr Hitler, Mr. Mussolini, this is our economic wherewithal. These are the tanks. These are the quality. These are the planes. Are you blank, blank crazy? You want to go up against this? So Blaney's point was that wars break out because of inexact knowledge or willful ignorance about the potential or the capability of enemies. But once everybody knows what's going on, then there's peace. We'll have peace with China as long as they know that we have 7,000 nukes. And when they get 6,000, we're going to have 8,000. And when they think they're going to go into Taiwan, then we're going to have the wherewithal. We're going to have a, I don't know, 800-ship Navy that can blast them out. When they know that, they're not going to do it. But if they don't know that, what we're capable of, there's going to be a war. That was Blaney's yeah. thesis. I think he was correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and then come back and talk about diversified versus monoculture farming. Stay with us and we'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. Um, We are um, produced by the John Solomon's Just the News, and it's a great website. He is an investigative reporter, so he does a lot of the news and the investigation, especially with the Biden administration. So those of our listeners who are interested in that should go look at Just the News um, online. So. Uh, Victor, so we our topic is diversified versus monoculture um, agriculture, and that's a very interesting question. How do you know whether to 
um, plant a whole bunch of different crops or to just go one? And what are the advantages? That's an age old decision. I wrote a book called The Other Greeks, and I argued that the city state, the polis, was the creation of a new type of diverse agriculture. And it was based on small farmers having title to their property because they were planting crops that required a great deal of investment, i.e. olive trees and vines, and therefore they wanted protection and have title to that land and their labor that had been invested. And that was the beginning of the 8th century of an agricultural revolution. And they were diverse and they were not monocrop like the great uh, cereal empires of the Euphrates, Tigris and Euphrates or the Nile Valley. So what is the advantages of each or disadvantages? Well, monocropping is you find the right climate. And so I am monocrop now. I have 42 acres I rent out. It's all in almonds. In fact, the whole area is monocrop into almonds. And so what would be the advantages of that? The advantages of that is you get to master it like no other. You only have to worry about one thing, almonds. You understand when they bloom. You understand how to cultivate them. You understand which is the best way to shake them. And you specialize. And therefore, you probably get better production. And then you have a predictable year. So you know that almonds get ripe, depending on the variety, somewhere between August 15th and September 15th. And you shake them and you put them on the ground and they dry for a day or two and you scoop them up and you're done for the year. No harvest. And so it's a very simplistic, specialized way to farm. And that's why most farming is specialized. But if you're diverse, you have a different philosophy. You say, yeah, but what if there's a mite species that infects those almonds and destroys the crop? Or what if they're all on the ground having been shaken and they only need three or four days and it's in August, but unseasonable hurricane goes from Baja, Mexico to the San Joaquin Valley, which happened and then rained not a tenth of an inch, but almost an inch. And all those almonds on the ground got sopping wet and they started to grow mold in their, inside their husk. And that happened. And that's the only crop you have. So you you have no insurance policy. So when I was farming with my brothers, we had, I think at one time we were farming 185 acres. And we had a staple of 60 acres of Thompson seedless for raisin production. We had 30 acres for uh, fr ruby seedless and girdle Thompson's for fresh fruit. We had 30 acres of uh, perishable fruit, three acres of this apricot, three acres of that apple pear, etc. And then we had 20 acres, 30 acres of farmer's market, organic, no pesticides, no chemical fertilizers, and sold at eight or nine markets. Okay. The advantage, when it rained on the raisins, we had already marketed the other crops. When it froze and destroyed uh, the vine crop, the, the vines were already through bloom. 
or they hadn't gone into bloom, one or the other. If it hailed and it destroyed the plum crop, it didn't damage the grape. You see what I mean? If somebody screwed up and he was uh, spraying gerberlic acid to thin out the bunches on grapes and then he, and he forgot, and he happens to be me, and it was said to be 95 degrees by two, and he said, you know, I just want to finish I don't want to keep on this rig. It's driving me crazy. I'd been on it since four in the morning. I'll just finish out at 95 degrees. And then the entire bunch gets shattered because it's too hot to put gerelic acid on. And you ruin 20 acres. But you didn't touch the apricots, the apple pears. You see what I mean? The peaches. And so you spread the risk. And the other thing is you spread both the work but you also minimize, you maximize your labor. So when you're doing specialized work, it's like, wow, I got to buy all these almond machines and shakers. I got to have all these people out on my plate. And then what? You either have your own equipment or you hire somebody with their own equipment. But then it's, it, what, what does an almond shaker do? You know what I mean? What does it do in December or July? It's just idle. Because you're doing one crop. Yeah. But when you have all these crops, you spread the labor and the capital, all the everything is maximized. So you can get 10 good guys and you can say, I can keep you working all year long. Or you get two great tractors and you're going to use them all for every different crop. But where specialization, you have one big shot and you're done. And then there's advantage to that. You don't have to worry about the crop, every crop you know, getting harvested year round, citrus in the winter, et cetera. So it's it's efficiency versus uh, flexibility or durability or insurance. And in the case of the ancients, they came across the idea they could take a couple of permanent laborers and keep them busy with vines, olives, and wheat rather than just cereals all year round. And then they spread risk. So if the weather was bad for the olives, it was not bad for the grapes. And then they, they said to themselves, what do you need to live on? Well, the olive gave them soap. It gave them axle grease. It gave them uh, cooking oil. It gave them non-perishable fruit, so to speak, for the years and eating olives. And what did the grapes gave you? It gave you fresh grapes. It gave you raisins that would be storable and it gave you wine and what did the cereals give you barley and wheat it gave you bread it gave you porridge etc so you had a complete diet by diversifying you spread the risk and you spread the labor and then each crop has a different requirement so if you plant almonds on even my little 40 acres there's very deep loams white ash soil they're high in nitrogen but because it was an ancient pond basin there's a lot of sandy areas so you can walk down a royal roll of almonds and they look enormous at one end of the 600 feet rows but when you get down to the sandy and they start to get a little bit scraggly but in the old days you could say to yourselves okay on my sandy ground i will plant uh an early plum and fertilize it and that sandy soil heats up it gets hotter because it 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 absorbs the heat much better than dense uh, loams 
rich loans full of nitrogen. And then I'll beat the plum market. It'll be five days earlier on a red butte or a black butte plum. And so each soil type can be custom uh, synchronized with a crop. And that's what the ancients did. So if they had a farm, they were usually vertical farms. They might have an acre or two of a little terraced piece of Greece is very mountainous valley bottomland. They put barley and, and, and oats or wheat that need a lot of nitrogen as you go up the hill. They would probably use that and terrace it for grapes. And in the case of wine and grapes, they don't need a lot of nitrogen necessarily. And the cooler temperatures on the hill make better wine. And then up to about 1,500 feet, you would put the olives that were there and you could have a vertically tailor-made farm. So there's a lot of advantages in diversity. It just is not as productive in any one crop and it's not as lucrative and it's not as dangerous. Well, Victor... Thank you for that. I I hadn't. What about the marketing? So you said it's not as lucrative. Is that because you have to go find all the different markets rather yes. than just sending mm-hmm. them in bulk? To so I have almonds now. Place. I have a renter, and he's just the expert on almonds. He has his own hauling operation. He's a very good guy, a wonderful person. He's very smart. He hauls it. He has he takes the almonds. He knows exactly what to do. That's all he mostly what he has. He ha- he hauls them and he's pretty much markets them himself. And it's very, he doesn't have to worry about, oh, wow, it's, I got the plum crop. I got the peach crop. I got the grape crop. I got the raisin crop. I got this. I got that. And I'm, I'm dealing with specialists. There's raisin farmers that only do his raisins and there's plum farmers that all, and I have to keep people with all these experts because I'm diverse. Yeah. But, so there's advantages in being monocrop. But on the other hand, as I said, you get a rain when the almonds are all on the ground, which happened, or you have a hundred thousand trays down of raisins and it rains and that's all you have. Then you're, it's kind of like going to Vegas. You know what I mean? You just go to Vegas and you think you're an expert at blackjack and you've mastered blackjack. So you're going to put all your money on blackjack and maybe the dealers cook it, or maybe there's, you don't know what you're, you're going to lose everything. But if you're an expert, you think you can outsmart them. Or are you going to go to the roulette wheel? Are you going to go to the poker table? Are you going to go to, and you, you're going to see which of your skills on that particular day help you, mm. you know, and you're going to spread the risk by playing different types of games rather than put everything on blackjack. And that it's, it's kind of like life, whether you want it diverse or you want it specialized. Yeah. There's advantages in each. And for most of my life, I was um, diverse and it was a lot of work. It was just every single day. It was, hey, go prune the plum trees, go prune the apricot the next way. They have to be pruned differently. Put the oil on the trees, but you don't put oil, of course, on vines. And you do this and that and this. And if you're going to use pre-emergent herbicide, you got to get a different kind for each. Can't put pre-emergent Carmex, for example on vines on sandy soil but you can do it on on tree it was just very complex you had, we had, i think at one point on 185 acres we had 20 different crops you know like eight average of eight acres or something and it wow. was just it drove me crazy and then and yet boy when we lost a crop 
of raisins, we had some income coming in. And then the other thing is you don't have to borrow all the year. So what happens when your almonds are specialized and you're not a big corporate enterprise, you got to take out a crop loan, right? And you're paying 7%. Or in my day, I, I thought when I got a, a loan from the Production Credit Association at 10% in 1982, I thought I went to heaven. And it was so low, 10%. Some of them were 14%. But the point is, you have that all year accruing. But when you have all these diverse species, there's income coming in. You know what I mean? So yes. that income is, well, the plum income is going to pay for the peach harvest. And the peach harvest is going to pay for the pear, pear harvest. And the pear harvest is going to pay for the raising harvest. So you're not borrowing money all the time. Yeah. Your in, income is is self-producing. And you're not, you know, you don't have to deal with a banker. So I'm sorry, I lost my entire raising crop and I, I need to borrow and I'll pay you back this time next year. So there were advantages, but you need a lot of labor with diversity. And I was very lucky. I had a twin brother who um, I kind of did some of the decisions on the actual business side, but he was, I think I'm kind of prejudiced, but he was kind of an authentic genius about bio. He had a master's in biology and he could walk down an orchard and tell you exactly what was wrong with it or a vineyard or he was very good at that on the yeah. science side. And he knew, you know, he knew pretty much everything about weeds and what herbicide did this to what weed and everything. He was very good on what a, an orchard would do and what it would not do. Whereas I was yeah. more or less saying, hmm, let's see, we need X number of boxes per acre to pay all of the hot cost and something, you know. And I wasn't I wasn't a natural farmer, is what I'm trying to say. It wasn't my forte. Yeah. But you definitely were able to financially manage it and and well, work what need work needed to be done and what work did not need to be done <laughs> yeah the difference was if i went into a santa rosa orchard and it was below if i thought the price had crashed in new york and it did not pay for the harvest of the box then i would say yank out the crew write the whole crop off i'm not paying a broker for the privilege of giving them plums below the cost of the harvest, not production, but for the harvest. Yeah. Whereas my brother would probably say, I'm not in it here. I'm trying to feed people, Victor, and I have produced a beautiful plum crop through my ability. And you don't know what the ultimate price will be, but I would like to gamble and say to myself, from the moment of bloom to the moment of picking, I did everything right. And I had produced beautiful red plums and they're delicious. And I plan to pack them and to give them to the broker and to send them to New York and Chicago and Atlanta. And they're going to make people happy. And that's my role in life. And I would argue, yeah. and we can go broke with your role in life. And he can say, well, we can just turn into a me mechanistic soulless farm too. Yeah. So you see what I mean? And we have yeah. expertise. And so it's very hard to, to, produce a very beautiful plum or peach and get it to the market in good shape. It requires a what moment you're going to pick 
you pick one day too early or two days too late, and you've got either green or rotting fruit, and you don't know, you can't control that decision because the labor people say, oh, I was going to pick your place, but this other guy offered me a dollar more an hour. Are you going to match it? You know, or yeah. something like that. And you can't control, but he, he was able to produce very good fruit. No doubt yeah. about it. Well, that's definitely a good topic, maybe for one of our future agricultural um, segments to talk about producing good tasty fruit because yes. sometimes we'll we have a natural time. yeah we have a natural inclination to think that mechanization has ruined the taste well, of the I, as fruit my brother would so, say so. he we had santa rosa plums think about that and we we marketed alberta peaches which are fragile they were old varieties that were delicious but they don't exist anymore because they're too difficult and so what the people want what the people want, they don't want. They want a bright, red, shiny, beautiful plum the size of a tennis ball, a peach. The problem is to genetically engineer that type of bright red peach that doesn't spoil and as hard as a rock, so you drop it and it bounces up in your hand. <laughs> it tastes <laughs> awful. Whereas you have a beautiful Santa Rosa plum or a late Alberta peach, it's just delicious. But how do you pick that thing with a, mar a window of 24 hours before it goes bad and get it to the market? Or if you have a beautiful plum that's delicious, but it doesn't look too good, it's not very shiny, it's an off color, and people look in the store and say, that looks awful. I like my plums bright red or purple or black. So, yeah. and then it's just, and then finally, that's what destroyed the fresh fruit market. We created all these varieties that ship from Reedley, California to Manhattan, and they look exactly the day you pick them, and they're beautiful, and they taste awful. Yeah. And then finally, people say, hmm, I like the way they look, but I hate the way they test, so, taste, so I'm not going to buy them anymore. And so, it really hurt the market. Yeah, it sure has. Well, Victor, that we're at the end of our time, way beyond it, actually. So we're going to have to close off here and thank our listeners. Well, thank you, everybody. I know we kind of went crazy from World War II to contemporary news to farming, but I hope some some of you got something in each of those segments. They're pretty diverse. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.